Welcome to the Real Estate Lowdown. I'm your host, Bill Bymel. The Real Estate Lowdown is your weekly opportunity to step into the conversations going on in today's real estate and mortgage markets. We explore terms and concepts of the industry, host interviews of intriguing industry cohorts from high net worth investors to real estate agents just making their mark. We will share our love of all things real estate, bringing you the most innovative and sustainable real estate lifestyle ideas each and every week. If you enjoy what you hear today, hit the follow button, subscribe, so you don't miss an episode, and please share your support with a quick review. You can find me on the web at billbymel.com, and thanks for joining this episode of the Real Estate Lowdown. I am so excited to be sharing with you, my audience, one of my favorite people in the investment world. Richard Wilson, welcome to the Real Estate Lowdown. Thanks for having me here. Appreciate it. I have to say, I am the reason I'm excited to be here in conversation with you, Rich, I don't know that you even know this, but I mean, all whenever anybody asks me, how do I learn the fundraising business and how do I learn how to interact with investors? I send them to you. I mean, you know, (laughs) it's just, you you know, the founder of the family office club. You want to tell a little, little background about to my audience about who you are and why I love you. (laughs) I'll take a, take a one minute guess and you can ask more about anything you think they care about. So uh, 16 years ago, I started an investor club called family office club and we've hosted 250 live events and have written 13 books and we bought billionaires.com last year. We're interviewing 100 billionaires. We got 25 of those interviews done so far that you can watch and listen to and read on billionaires.com. And you know, Family Office Club is just a community where we're just constantly learning how the ultra wealthy structure their deals and put together capital and source deals. And you know, it's like a perpetual learning machine for myself and hopefully for you know members like yourself as well. Yeah, you know, I I think it was about seven years ago. That I, you know, people who know me know that I'm a deal junkie. I love real estate. I love the art of the deal. I love working assets. And so that had been my career. And then about seven years ago, my boss at the time, I was a number two guy in a New York fund called Spurs Capital. And my boss comes to me and says, listen, our main investor wants to reduce their position. They no longer want to carry 150 million of equity with us. They want to do half that. We got to go find more money. And, you know, my dear mentor and former boss did not have the chops nor the interest in actually doing any of that himself. He, you know, he taught me the business, one of the most brilliant guys of mortgage banking and trading that I know, but had no interest in fundraising or anything like that. So I took it upon myself to learn it. How do I go out and present myself? It is a completely different career to be yeah. somebody who has to go out and raise money for deals rather than somebody who just does deals, right? Sure. And for so, sure. so I learned a lot of those basics from you. I mean, you know, the family off, even the, you were so, you're so ahead of the curve in many ways because, you know, I didn't even know what a family office was 10 years ago. And then the word kind of started to become more of the ethos of investors and investments. And then I started to learn about it. And I would say some of those early events 
that I did. I mean, it was your. It was at one of your events in New York City. Remember the what's the ballroom in Midtown that you yeah, Edison to- Ballroom? I just walked by it. <laughs> I did too, actually. That's so funny. Yeah. Oh, we that one of those early events was where I got the idea for the book for that, that I could actually write a book, and you know that book and has been my best calling card. I, that book, Win Win Revolution, that I published in seventeen. That was directly a result of attending your event and the branding. I would say the name First Lean Capital. I would credit to you. You didn't come up with the idea, but you gave me the the knowledge that you got to come up with that it's got to be something that ex, that both has a hook but also explains the business you know right and- <laughs> right, right so many people don't get that and they hear me say it they're like oh well, i already spent 20 dollars printing my business card so i'm just going to kill keep wilson capital who cares and you know it's like okay well it's just gonna be harder every day of your life right so right. that's awesome yeah, I mean, it's just been. I really do. So, I everybody that comes to me says, you know, you know, where do you, where do you go? It's a, just a great educational resource, and especially in those early days, like, you know, I mean, you you really the value beats anybody out there from an educational standpoint, and there's so many folks in the event business that are just there for the business. Yours right. is a true group where you're really are providing a value to all sides of it. You're, you're allowing the family offices to get their names out by interviewing them in your clips and whatnot so that they have more access to deals. You're giving right. a little sense of, you know, access to those people through for new managers. And, and the branding is so important. Just the little things that you can learn attending one of your events, one of your cap intro events and how to put a, a deck together. I mean, it's just really, right. really great. And, and that's why, you know, I love you so much because we all know that money comes for those of us that work hard and, and are smart. But for, for, to give back and to be able to create an industry or a business that is profitable, and successful for us, but also does good in forwarding the conversation of the industry. I think that's the greatest power. So awesome. Yeah, so. No, I definitely appreciate that. I mean, I think that when I got started, people told me I was wasting my time and the family office space was nothing in that I should do something else. And so I, I, I'm just finishing up the Schwarzenegger documentary on Netflix. And if, if anyone hasn't seen that, you got to watch it. It's not only funny, super insightful about how much of it was about his vision and just working really hard, laser focused on getting to the top and whatever he did. And people told him as well that he's wasting his time. He's never going to be an actor. No one can even understand what he says. You know, and I was, I was 24 years old when I started family office club and it's been a little bit over 16 years now. So now I'm 41, but for the first three to five years there, people are just telling me this was a waste of time and a bad idea. So I appreciate you saying all those nice things. Yeah, and it and it it is a true visionary who can, in the face of no agreement, in the face of of the world telling you you're crazy, it's a waste of time to stick with something, and and believe in something the way you did, and really, you know, I mean, it, it's paying off, obviously, and and I give you kudos. So so let's talk about it. Let's talk about you know how are you building. How do you recommend, give us some, some of your, your techniques. How do you add value? How do you build relationships faster with private investors? This is the conversation we're having today because 
all of us, you know, the real estate lowdown is obviously a real estate mortgage investment oriented podcast, but we're all out looking for more capital. And yeah, exactly. uh, thoughts on that? You know, like, what what do you some key points you want to share or something? Yeah, of course. So one thing is that everything gets easier when you focus on a niche type of investor. If you're raising capital for medical offices, perhaps you could raise capital from doctors. They understand the niche. You're raising capital for a litigation hedge fund. Maybe you raise capital from law firm partners. If you worked in a certain industry and you were a law firm partner, now you're syndicating real estate deals. Maybe you could raise capital from your, your past peers. So that's the first step because the real thing you have to do is to develop your own templates for how you add value. Obviously, you add value by putting this first position, the first lane position deals together. But how do you add value to an investor before you're pitching them what you do so you can get their attention? Because at the beginning, they don't owe you any of their attention. And so, yeah, if you have a killer one-liner and a killer brand name, you might cut through the clutter of the 800 messages in their inbox. But really, how do you add value in a unique way no one else is? And sometimes that is finding out that their son's trying to get into a school and you help get a meeting with somebody on the board, the admissions board of that school, or you help the son or daughter get an internship or you give them an internship, or you might get that family office a client. You might introduce them to a peer, another family office at the same level, or even if it's not what you do, if you know they're in manufacturing and you have a piece of deal flow of manufacturing, even if you're a real estate syndicator and you help make that connection, they're going to say, wow, how can I thank you? Other templates could be knowing they're going through a sale and helping them get through it in a tax-efficient way. It could be helping them do proactive tax planning and the money they save on taxes, they could toss into one of your deals. It could be saving money on something in their company, like an R&D tax credit because they're in software manufacturing. They never heard of that before. So anything you can do to help them set up their family office, point them to a resource, add value first. We sometimes... One time we got a $400 million net worth family to reply to us cold the first day we reached out to them because they had a number of service retail businesses. And I saw they had 20 of them, a really great business model. And my two sentence email was, I see you have 20 plus locations. I'm guessing every time you open up a location, you raise a bit of money and give away a decent chunk of equity. What if we could structure a deal that brings you in that money and you don't get diluted at all and you can grow and keep all the pie yourself? And they replied the same day. And then I ended up meeting with them and meeting with their board and developing a relationship there. So it's a long answer, but basically you have to develop your own templates. You know, like I suck at golf. I don't have a private jet to take people on. You know, if you have certain things, you use what you're born with and what you have and figure out how you add value to people. That's great stuff, Rich. It's funny that you said that you you suck at golf because like, I'm not bad, but I I just don't have the gumption to spend four hours doing anything. I mean, it's like the idea, like I hear Oppenheimer is a great movie, but three hours. I mean, it's like, the only thing I do more than three hours is a flop. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I love that idea, by the way, that you mentioned where it's like, you know, you see that there, these are real stories going on in Florida where you're at, by the way, because I could tell you're a Florida boy because the, the private school thing is so real in Florida right now. I was down there a few weeks ago. You know, I'm from Florida originally, and obviously our fund is still domiciled in South Florida, and a lot of our investors are based there. I did not realize how difficult, like some of the biggest, most richest, powerful people from the Northeast that have moved to Palm Beach can't get their kids even on the waiting list to places like Pinecrest and Benjamin. And it's like, these these were like, it was a no-brainer. So these are real world problems. I mean, these are real, 
you know, obviously high net worth problems, but these are, it's a real issue for some people. If you can. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) So, and you know, the other point you made a very good point. I have a, I had a broker who just retired from the business. I probably acquired half of my portfolio in the last two years through deals that he brought me. And, you know, the relationship is the, you mentioned giving their kid a job or something like that. His daughter's first internship was with my real estate brokerage 20 years ago. Who would have thought that that little thing that I did 20 years ago for his daughter would have built, you know, helped me 18 years later building my portfolio at First Lean. So yeah. Yeah, that little bit know. of pay it forward, give something to get something, I think really is good advice. That is good. Yeah, stuff. for sure. We had one time where I was in Liechtenstein and I haven't drank alcohol for about 12 years now, but when I was there, we had dinner and it was like this 40 person table and the Prince of Liechtenstein was at the end of the table and like this tiny little country. And we went downtown Vaduz and they had a, a winery there that was owned by the royal family. It had a really cool family crest on the bottle and the wine was actually really good. And so we said, well, where can we buy this in the United States? They said, oh, nowhere. So we brought a whole box home with us and kept in touch with the winery. And Princess Marie oversaw the winery business. And we formed an agreement because they had nobody to import their wine. And my secretary filled out a bunch of alcohol, federal wine import paperwork for like 2000 bucks. We became their federal importer of alcohol for a $10 billion net worth family that owns their own country. And nobody else going through Liechtenstein had offered to help them out for $2,000 and just get their wine into the United States, which is like crazy, right? Such a cheap favor to do to a family. So that's, you know, always on the lookout for how we can add value to others, even if it never comes back directly. Well, now we're associated with this family that owns their own country. So even if, you know, it's just a cool story either way. That is a great story. I mean, you, you know, being in this club, you... Being in this business and what you, you know, you're interfacing with family offices and now regular basis with billionaires, the, and I know how difficult it is to get in with them because we talked about it when you bought billionaires, I was trying to get my billionaire friends to get on board and they're all like very shy, you know, (laughs) unfortunately, Unfortunately. I guess it's good barriers to entry, right? If someone wants to try to copy what we're doing, they'll have a crappier domain name and probably face the same challenges we are unless they're like. Tony Robbins himself or something, right? So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. So what do you see? Do you see it a pattern in any way when you're dealing with the high net worth or the super high net worth individuals in terms of the way they see the world? Yeah. In terms of like the commonalities on their mindsets? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that some of them are very a lot of them are very focused and they're very focused on making sure that they are being, they're taking like exponential actions versus linear at every level. So if you have bad team members, it slows you down. If you have bad partners, it slows you down. If your business model is not profitable, it slows you down. If your market's very tiny, that can slow you down. And if you get to know yourself as a business person, you learn, oh, I'm good at sourcing deals, or I'm good at negotiating the deals, or I'm good at marketing or closing whale clients. And wherever you're good at, you should be evolving every year and doing 80, 20, more and more and more of what you're super good at. And so when you stack everything I mentioned on top of each other and your ambition is massive, you don't start to coast and relax once you start making a quarter million or half a million a year. And I think that combination is part of the mindset that really has people really take off. If you're in a tiny market or a bad model or you're not super ambitious, then you know it's pretty easy to coast. You know, you could live in the, you know, be like Warren and 
live in Nebraska and, you know, quarter million a year and you're like, you're doing well, right? Half a million a year in most cities, you're doing decent, you know, or, or 1 million a year. But why would you try to make 10 million profit a year if you're comfortable? Well, part of it goes beyond meeting the basic needs or even meeting more needs. It's really the desire to create something huge or just reach your potential. So I see that, you know, the stacking of the exponential things that all add up to massive growth. And then the, the ambition doesn't stop when you get enough money to meet your, you know, your goals to purchase whatever car or whatever. Right. 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 So that it's that drive that is unique beyond just getting to a certain level. It's like a never ending kind of fixation to, to build and build. And yeah, I, I mean, there's a little maybe bit of, maybe, maybe that means I got a chance. <laughs> to be in the so I'm a workaholic. I can, I'm never get enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, the good thing is if you enjoy what you're doing. It's easy to become a workaholic, which is good and bad. I mean, I know you live where you do to be close to your daughter in part. Right. So right. obviously you're, you're balancing other things and not just working 24 seven, but a lot of people who become billionaires, they are not only smart, they not only work smart, but they also work really hard. I've only met one or two billionaires so far that like Larry Namer, who founded the e-channel, never worked himself to death, never grinded super hard. You hear people like Ariana Huffington say, you know, get your sleep, don't work too hard because she fell on her face and broke her jaw. She didn't sleep for multiple days working. But if she hadn't have grinded for a decade, maybe she wouldn't be Ariana Huffington and she wouldn't be a billionaire. So Larry Namer the whole way up was just like work smarter, hire great people, super laid back, relaxed. Every other billionaire worked super hard and was working smart and always iterating and evolving and looking for something that could really scale huge. He's never become a billionaire if you have something that can't scale. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's turn our attention for a few minutes to the state of the economy. Here we are in the summer. I always like to place where we are in case somebody is listening to this 10 years from now. We're in the summer of 2023. We've just come off of the greatest one-year increase in, in interest rates this economy has ever seen. And I say that from a exponential point of view and a literal point of view. You've never seen a 600 basis point move in one year. And when you think about the effect of that from zero to six, it's a lot more than going from eight to 20 even, you know, I mean, from an exponential point of view. So, you know, I am of the opinion that the interest rate increase has yet to really show itself, that there are folks that are highly leveraged, that there are banks that are illiquid, that there's businesses struggling with corporate debt, and that we are on the verge of seeing something break. But that's just, I don't want to lead the, I don't want to lead the, <laughs> what do you say when you're leading the witness? I don't want to lead the witness here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What do you see? What do you see personally? And what are you seeing? What are you hearing from your high net worth investors in terms of where we are right now and where, where, what you see in the near, near future? Yeah, sure. What I see is that, the, like you said, when interest rates go up, there is a lag period People try to get the old pricing on their real estate assets. Some unfortunate people will give them something close to the old pricing. Eventually, they'll have to lower the pricing if they actually want to sell their asset. We're dealing with a waterfront motel we're trying to build in Florida or buy in Florida, and they're still at 2021 pricing. So we're like, no way. Good luck, right? And they've been sitting on the market for a year and a half. So you have that, and eventually they'll come to reality or delist the properties, and that lowers. 
All the real estate that we've bought since interest rates have gone up has been at an average 22.5% off of the list price. And some of those properties got listed after interest rates went up. So it's a good 25, 30% below the top, top. And we feel comfortable buying in at that much of a haircut at this point. But a lot of investors are only allocating at 25% to 33% of the rate they used to. And when they do invest, it's because they need some bonus depreciation. Or they just need to put the capital to work in case inflation goes. And when we're sitting on money, that's just burning a hole in their pocket and losing value to inflation. So they can put it in money market accounts or other things, of course, treasuries. But the other thing that's happening is that with some banks, they'll have a forgiveness period or the asset owner will go and plead with them and say, hey, give us some more time, give us more time. Other times you have a floating rate over three, five, seven years that got set at all different days and months at the time. So every day, somebody's floating rate is no longer floating. And then they get underwater. And then the bank finds out they're underwater after missing two or three payments. So it's just rolling slow motion train wreck of these cars coming off the tracks. And if it stayed high for seven years, then all the trains came off the tracks that had floating rates. Most people are just waiting for something that's going to dive things down, whether it's a terrorist attack or some of the Biden family going to jail or Trump literally going inside of a jail cell or an assassination or another war or some cyber hack or Intel. It turns out Intel's a fraud and the whole tech sector goes down more, right? Like some event will just like crumble this weak economy that's just trying to like shake along down the tracks versus people don't really expect to wake up tomorrow and be like, oh, you know, Facebook's earnings were so amazing. Now everything's going up and who cares about high rates and everything's going to be great and amazing. I mean, People really are waiting for things to burn so they can be smart and say, hey, yeah, that was awesome. Good thing we are patient. Now now we know we're smart by investing because it's not hasn't burned down enough to be super wise to go all in, right? Like so when COVID hit and MGM and Marriott and Hertz and everything went down 90% in value, yeah, you can sit on your couch and you felt pretty damn smart. I'm not a stock market guy, but I told my wife, like, we're putting a lot of money in the stock market right now. Because Marriott and Disney are not going out of business, right? And so you didn't have to be smart at all to make a lot of money doing that. And so that'd be that's how I see the economy right now. So we are buying some things, but only where we can force appreciation. We don't want to miss out on that deal. And only if we can get a 20-some percent haircut off where it was at the top. That is really great information. I mean, there you hear it. You know, you're already down 20, 25% off the top for the smart investor right now. And that's kind of the way we see it as well. Listen, I'm always buying at a discount. So that's just like the name of the game for me. Right. <laughs> I'm not right. a traditional, you know, a traditional real estate player. We're, we're always in that, you know, we always have downside protection in everything we buy. But for the, for the traditional real estate player, like, you're, you know, these family offices who want the depreciation, who want, you know, it's really a back to fundamentals kind of thing, you know, like, you, you, you know, the pricing has to be there. The cap has to be there. It can't be something where your tenants will pay more money or that rates will go down. But it, it certainly does feel like we're on the teeter. I totally 100% agree with that. And you mentioned so many things that I thought could, that I, you really hit the nail on the head because any one of these crazy things, what you just said sound like if it was just out of context, Biden's kid going to jail, Trump going to jail. These are all realistically crazy things that could happen that might, you know, right. and, or a war with China, you know, it's just, you're right. It feels like everyone's waiting for the next shoe to drop. Yeah, we had Mitch Garrett, who was running Trump's family office, speak at our conference uh, one year before he got elected in the Edison Ballroom. 
And he said, when my boss gets elected as president, blah, blah, blah. And he was serious. Everyone in the room was laughing. Because <laughs> no one believed that Trump would be president. So all those things I just mentioned are more realistic than what people thought was going to happen with Trump or much more realistic than what anyone would have expected with COVID. And we all get locked in our homes and forced to shoot up chemicals by the government, right? So we didn't expect that, right? <laughs> that's right. That's so true. Oh, that's great. It's always good to be with you, Rich. Do you mind checking in with me at least once every six months and we do this again? Yeah. So I want to keep bri- apprised of how you're doing and how how your investors and your family offices see the world. I think you had a really important perspective for my audience. Any last words or advice that you want to share? Of course, all of your information for Rich and the family office's background will be in the memo of this episode, but maybe some last words of advice or or parting ways on how to get involved with you. Yeah, I think before I give like my contact details on my website, what's interesting is some people say, oh, well, since you own billionaires.com, you're studying all these billionaires. Like, wow, that's going to really, that's going to get you your net worth way up there. That's going to make you a billionaire, Richard. And, and I don't really think that owning the website will do so. But the reason they say that is that the top five people you hang out with, you become more like them, right? The media you consume, you turn into that. If you have your five-year-old watch a bunch of rated R movies, they're probably going to swear more. It's just how the brain works. And so if you think about how many business books you've read in your life, maybe 100, maybe 500, most people, when I survey a room of 700 people, no one's read more than 10 books written by a billionaire that I've found so far. Maybe someone listening has or you have Bill, but let's say it's even 20 books out of 500 books. Well, if you're going to learn basketball, you don't want to go to the people that that are college basketball players and just good at marketing their books. You want to go to the Jordans and the Kobe's or at least people in the NBA billionaires are the people in the NBA. Most business books are written by people really good at marketing their books, but they're not as good at business as they are as a billionaire. So you're reading a bunch of college, you know, Duke University basketball players books. They're just really good at marketing their book versus billionaires. And what would happen if you spent one hour a day for the next year consuming billionaire level ideas straight from the mouths of billionaires on YouTube You know, through interviews we do on billionaires.com by reading all 240 books written by billionaires. You know, that's my mission with billionaires.com is to organize the niche, but also just suck all that information into my brain and see what happens. And uh, people can check it out by going to billionaires.com. They can check out our family office club by going to familyoffices.com. We've got a free web class there. We've got our live events coming up. So happy to keep in touch with people. And my email is richard at familyoffices.com if they want to reach out directly. Fantastic advice from a man that I have learned a lot from, who's younger than me, by the way, and looks a lot young, way younger than, you're only six years younger, but you look like 15. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, Rich Wilson, it's been an absolute pleasure to spend some time with you on the Real Estate Lowdown, and great advice. Yeah, learn from the people that do, as opposed to the people that just teach. Really good stuff. Thanks for being with us today, Rich. Thanks for having me here, Bill. Take care. That's a wrap of today's episode of the Real Estate Lowdown. I enjoy bringing this content to you each and every week, and I really appreciate you tuning in. If you haven't already done so, please share the Real Estate Lowdown or any episode, any favorite episode with your friends, family, and 
you know, if you don't mind, leave a positive review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember to follow us so you don't do get notified every time a new episode is released. Love to hear from you directly at billbymel.com. Till then, see you next time.